Uh, would you pray with me as we get started this morning working through week five of our Church Hex series? Uh, let's pray together. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we are so grateful for this morning. Um, we are grateful for your words to us that are incredibly clear. Uh, and in that clarity, it invokes one of two responses. It, it, it invokes in us, and in, in some of us, this deep sense of comfort um, and clarity and confidence while we live and move and breathe. And then for others, it creates this uh, almost like a, like a hostile pushback. And in a climate right now, uh, this conversation has the potential to really do that on both sides. And I know that's not the heart of it, but I know by virtue of how clear you are, this is what it can conjure up inside of the human heart. God, this morning we pray that your spirit would be here in this room and listening, not listening, but be present in the living rooms while we work through this conversation, that we might, that we might hear this well, uh, uh, that comes from a heart that is uh, filled with love and grace towards your people, and that we would respond appropriately for your goodness and glory and for our life's sake. That we ask you to bless this time. In your name we pray, amen. We've been working through a series called Church Hacks, and it's really a, a play on the whole life hack kind of cultural phenomenon that's been around for a few years. And just to bring everybody up to speed, a life hack, the definition is a procedure or action <clears throat> that solves a problem or simplifies something in our everyday lives. A procedure or action that solves a problem or simplifies something in our everyday lives. And in the climate of quick and simple hacks, we want to turn our attention to a problem that has plagued the human condition for centuries that is a unique question that is asked of Jesus in Mark chapter 10, verse 17, and it's on the screen, and you can read this with me. And we'll kind of get into the context of this story a little bit later in our conversation but just to highlight the question and the quick, simple hack that the church has moved into, uh, we'll just go right to this place in the text. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? For as long as human beings have been living, there has been and there forever will be a deep desire inside of the human to live life forever. And this desire to live our life forever shapes many of our day-to-day -day decisions that we practice even though we might not realize it's linked to this question. A couple of examples that highlight this. I have watched people as they near the end of their life in sickness or disease they are willing to put their body through brutal medical treatments if it means they can live longer. There are people that are forced to make decisions where the doctors clearly tell them this is going to be very hard on your physical body. In fact, your physical body might not make it through this, but if you want a chance at living life longer, this is what we're recommending. And many, many, many humans will say, yep, I'm all in if it means I can extend my life by three or four or five years or maybe even longer than that. I have watched people at the end of their life fly all over the world looking for these kind of medicinal um, agents that are discovered and new that are kind of 
outside of the mainstream medical practices, all in an effort to, again, heal the body and restore human life for as long as we can. One step further, this whole dilemma of eternal life, in our present day, there is a group of scientists that are working on what is called the Immortality Project. Some of these scientists think that within the next 40 years, the idea and the problem of death will be solved and that human being will be, their lives will be extended for years and years and years, if not forever, as they work tirelessly to solve the problem of death where we can live forever and ever. Woven into the very fabric of the human condition, God through creation, in fact, intended for you and I to live forever. So it shouldn't really surprise us when we see people make decisions where they're wanting to make their life go longer. Scientists, it shouldn't surprise us that they are studying ways in which they can figure out why the body breaks down and stop that process so it can in fact live longer and maybe even forever. It shouldn't surprise us because woven into our fabric, God has designed us to in fact to live forever. Jesus in Mark chapter 10 is asked this question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? The hack of living forever, the quick and simple solution to this problem or this question, this hack has taken center stage in the church all over the world. And we're going to highlight three different responses that have slowly crept into church life. And listen when I say this, I am talking to people who claim to follow Christ people who do not believe in God and they don't recognize Christ for who He is, I'm not talking to them. I'm talking about individuals who claim to follow Christ and how it has crept into the church. And by speaking to this group, it really addresses every group. But the primary one are those of us who believe and have put our hope in who Christ is. The question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The first hack or the first quick and simple is this term called Christian universalism. Christian universalism is a belief found amongst Christians that says that all people, regardless of who they are, what they are, what they have done, who they believe and what they follow, will one day be reconciled to God and experience the great gift of salvation. This is not a new idea. It started back in the mid-1700s. A gentleman by the name of Adam Streeter is the first one that birthed this idea of Christian universalism inside the church. It's just creeping its way more and more and more into the church. This hack, this simple solution, does in fact solve the problem of eternal life in the most simplest of ways. Because I absolutely have to do nothing. To experience this incredible gift of God's salvation, I have to do nothing. Because in the end, it doesn't matter what happens between A, B, C, D, or E, F, G. In the end, I will be ultimately reconciled to God. This hack has gained tremendous ground in our culture. At a lot of funerals that I either participate in or have sat through, I have heard this Christian universalism on full display where someone will say, I'm just glad so-and-so is now in a better place. It's weird that we automatically think that someone in their death is automatically in a better place. It's weird that we automatically go to an environment 
that struggle and suffering is now gone, as though there is no other kind of equation or person that's required to actually experience the better place on the other side of this human life. It's curious. In my life, I will have coffee with a lot of people around a lot of tables. And one of the chief questions that's asked of me in this space of Christian universalism is, well, if God is so loving, how could He possibly send someone to hell? The other, the dark side, shall we say, of eternal life. It's here where Christian universalism is born because God's love certainly would never do that. So we just run to the space of everybody makes it and it doesn't matter who and what they believe or follow. That's the first hack on this question of eternal life. The second one is this one. And this has been around for a long time. And this is just the simple good works conversation. This hack is probably more common than the first humans, uh, we are trained early to believe this one. We are trained early to say that if someone just does good things, if they live good lives, then God will have to grant us eternal life. And I can see why we think this way, because everything about our existence trains us to think this way. If I'm a good employee, if I increase the company's profits, if I add clients, if I add sales, if I add whatever, that company, more often than not, rewards that employee with bonuses, with raises, with more vacation, with all kinds of things. This is one of the ways that we are passively trained to think that good works equals rewards when it comes to the conversation of eternal life. If I'm a good student and I work hard and I get extra help and I have my professors proofread my material before I submit it, then we are trained because we get good marks when we do this stuff. If you have children, you will get this, is that when our children behave well, when they, particularly like on a hot summer day, if you do this, you'll get an ice cream. Like we train our children that if you do good things, if you say nice things, if you treat your siblings with love and kindness and respect, then we're reward, we reward them with either allowance or toys or treats. So this training of when I am good, I get good things, this is a natural tendency for humans to think that if I live a good life, then God will in fact grant me eternal life at the moment of my death. The third one is this. So this is just the broader conversation of universalism. And this is a conversation that says that all roads lead to heaven. What must I do to inherit eternal life? In the conversation of universalism, it is essentially I can pick any faith. I can pick any religion, any form of spiritualism or mysticism. I can pick any one of them. And if I stick to it, it all leads to the same God at the end anyway. And I will be granted eternal life. This idea has been around for a long time. This is not new. And, and please hear me when I say this. There's nothing new under the sun. There's really not. And all of the fads and all of the cultural nuances that we are working through today, none of them are new under the sun. This idea of universalism first began in the first 500 years of the early church. There was four different times in the first 500 years where this idea of universalism rose to the surface and gained a lot of traction. It was in 553 at the Second Church Council of Constantinople when it was officially deemed a heresy, which is a fancy way of saying this is not true. 
Today, though, it's no longer viewed as a heresy, but rather another great expression of God's love. The main proponent of this idea is a guy named Jonathan Hick, a 20th century universalist that begins this conversation or kind of pushes it to the top again, where now it's just accepted kind of carte blanche across the board. Now, if we may, I want to just move away from these three particular hacks, these three simple solutions to the problem of eternal life, and really begin to dive into the question that is asked of Jesus in Mark 10, 17, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I will be the first to admit that the hacks are incredibly attractive to solve the problem. But I want to work through this question in a way that speaks to who Jesus Christ is and how he answers this question. And the reason why, and I want you to know this of me, I think Jesus is the most unique human to have ever lived. I'll explain why he is the most unique human a little bit later. I'm all in on who he is and what he has said. And I want to work through this question through Jesus' response to this man who is asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? His answer to this question reveals something very different from a culture of hacks. His answer reveals something that's very specific. In fact, it's so specific that these cultural hacks do not work and they cannot apply to how specific Jesus is as he answers this question. If you have a Bible with you or a phone with a Bible on it, I would invite you to get it out. And there's some passages on the screen that I will read, but I would love for you to take a picture of this on your phone and take it home and read through these in your leisure time so that you can hear that these are not my words that answer this question in a very pointed way, but these are in fact Christ's words on this issue. We'll start with John 3.16, perhaps the most famous passages of all of Scripture. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whosoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life or everlasting life. In Acts 4.12, it says, Salvation is found in no other name given among heaven by which we are saved. Romans 10.9 says, If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. In John 11.25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in Me will live even though they die. In John 4, 13 and 14, Jesus answers a question and says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. This is the woman at the well story. But whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. These are the words that Jesus gives to us that clearly indicates what is required to inherit this incredible gift called eternal life. Nothing more and nothing less. It's like traveling to Halifax and you'll see this sign and you're being told this is the only exit to Halifax. <laughs> and if you miss this exit, you will be arguing with your wife all the way to Stellarton that you're still headed to Halifax. And you've wasted an hour and a half of your trip and ruined family vacation out of experience. <laughs> Jesus is the most unique person in human history. And he gives us clear instruction as to which exit we must take to experience eternal life. 
The reason why I keep talking about Jesus as though he's the most unique human to have ever lived is because Jesus isn't like other religious figures. He's not like other prophets. He's not like other wise people who have been around that said some nice things sometime. Jesus himself is in fact God. And he is telling us, as God, how we come to know and walk with the living God. He is God to come down to earth, Emmanuel, to say, hey, there is a God, and he's done something significant, and I'm him, and this is the way back to him. Which begs the question, what is the proper response to this person of Jesus? The most common way we respond to Jesus, often in church language, is that we would say one must believe in Jesus Christ. We must believe that he is the Son of God. We believe that he died on the cross. We believe he rose from the dead. Three of the five passages that I read a moment ago all use this language of believe that Jesus has done one of these things, has come to this earth, has died on a cross, has been raised from the dead. And that if I believe these things, this is what's required to inherit eternal life. But there's a danger in this terminology of belief. And let me explain what I mean by this. I believe that China is a real country, even though I've never been there. I believe the Montreal Canadiens are, in fact, the best hockey team in history because they have the most championship banners hanging from their roof. I believe that vegetable gardens will grow food because this is what they do. And none of these beliefs of mine have no bearing on my life. I believe hundreds of things to be true of this world, but have no bearing on my life. It's nothing more than the right answer to a trivia question. And for many of us in this room and listening online, we can look at Jesus and we can believe the right things and say the right things, and it's no different than how you believe that China is a real country, even though many of us in the room have never been there. Even though that we know that if we put a bean seed into our garden, that in a few months there are green and yellow beans to pick from. For many of us in this room and listening online, our belief in Jesus is no different than these things. There is a way that we are to rightly respond to Jesus Christ. This belief that I just highlighted to you about a country that I've never been to and how gardens work, that kind of belief, you need to know, gets us nowhere. In fact, Jesus very clearly speaks to this person in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It says, there will be people who claim and call me Lord, Lord, and he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. These are individuals who believe that Jesus is, but what they have done with Jesus is to make him nothing more than a trivia question to what must I do to inherit eternal life, Jesus. What do you win? Nothing. Nothing. When it comes to Jesus and eternal life, there's a conversation that we've already touched on in Mark chapter 10 that we're going to dive into a little bit further. This is a story of a very wealthy man who is good and does a lot of good things and follows the law really, really, really well. And yet he recognizes in his life that there's still something missing as it relates to this age-old question of what must I do to inherit eternal life? And we'll pick it up at the very end of the story in Mark 10, 21, 22, where Jesus looks at him and loved him. You can't miss that line. 
And then he goes on to say, one thing you lack, he said. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Whatever this man believed about Jesus, it is not the kind of belief that would allow Jesus to define his life. In this case, as Jesus gives him the clear answer, what is required to eternal life, sell all that you have, give it away, and come follow me. This man, whatever he believed of Jesus, he is not willing to do this. He is not willing to let Jesus shape his life. And in all fairness, if this story gets rewritten today, it could be one of a hundred things. It just so happens that this guy, his big thing was his wealth, was his money. And Jesus puts his finger on it and says, you have to be willing to give this up and then come follow me. He might look at you and say, it could be your fear. You have to stop being so afraid of this world. Then follow me. He could look at us and say, you have to stop doing this. You have to stop grounding your identity in other things. You have to stop this and you have to stop that. And if not willing to do this, then our belief in Jesus is no different than how I would believe of gardens and the country of China and millions of things in my life. The belief in Jesus that matters. The belief in Jesus that results in eternal life is a belief that sees Jesus' words define who we are. It's a belief that would lean into all that Jesus says about life and allow His instruction to shape our life. How we think, how we live, the things that we think about, what we say and what we do and the things that we don't do. This is the kind of belief that actually brings about eternal life in the life of a human being. This is what's intended when the Bible says, believe in Jesus and you will be saved. It's not saying you have to believe it like a trivia question. You have to believe it to the point that it shapes your life because we recognize that Jesus is in fact God. That there's a uniqueness to Him that sets Him apart from every other character that has ever lived through human history. So what must we do to inherit eternal life? We believe in Jesus. And this flies in the face of Christian universalism. Because there will be lines drawn in the sand between those who have responded rightly to Jesus by faith and those who believe in Jesus to be nothing more than a trivia question like I would believe that China is a real country even though I've never been there. This cuts across the grain of our good works. It's about letting Jesus shape our life. It's allowing Him to penetrate issues of our heart and of our mind. It's allowing His words to just captivate us. And when we by faith respond to Christ's instructions, God by His grace through His Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit, begins to actually transform you from who we were to a son and a daughter that is incredibly different from where we've come from. We believe in Jesus and it dismantles the idea that all roads lead to heaven. It isn't a matter of picking a path and sticking to that path. It is a matter of picking the right exit to Halifax. And in a world where that sounds so offensive and so different and so counter, 
if I can reframe this for you, it is a tremendous act of love that if, in fact, there is just one God, and if this one God has said, this is the one way to get to me, I don't know why we refuse to hear this. It's weird to me that Christ followers make up stuff to fit a narrative of what we just like. And we've never really submitted our lives to what Christ would say on matters of life and living, particularly this conversation of eternal life. To inherit eternal life, belief in Jesus is required. I'm going to invite Dana and team back because they're going to lead us in a song in a moment. And as they come back, I want to ask this question. Why does Jesus hold such a prominent place in the conversation of inheriting eternal life? Why is our response so crucial to who He is? Well, the answer is perhaps most clearly seen in what we're practicing today as we gather around our table to celebrate communion. In communion, we are remembering the life of Jesus. We are remembering the broken body. We are remembering the shed blood of Christ. We remember His death. According to Jesus, found in the text of Scripture, death comes to each and every person on the planet. Romans 6 says, for the wages of sin is death. And in Jesus' life, the man, the most unique man who did in fact die, it's curious that he in fact went into the grave because Jesus was without sin. In 1 Peter 2, it tells us the one who committed no sin No deceit was found in his mouth. Jesus, in fact, died. This is Good Friday. Hundreds of people witnessed his death. Hundreds of people witnessed him being buried in a tomb. So why did Jesus have to die if there was no sin in his life, which is unlike me? We are told that God out of love, Jesus out of love for you, willingly laid down his life of his own free will. And he does this, and I need you to listen to this. Again, speaking to the uniqueness of Christ when laid against every other human who has ever lived. He willingly lays down his life in order that my sin could be forgiven. No other deity offers this. No other God offers this. Jesus willingly lays down his life so that I could be removed from the penalty of sin which I deserve and it's placed on himself. He willingly does this. And this ties back into last week. So that I could be reconciled with God. The one who has made me, the one in whom from birth that I drift away from, he's died so that I could be reconciled to him. There are some passages I want to read to you this morning. And I invite you just to close your eyes where you are and let these just sit over your heart and mind this morning. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you, to bring me, to bring us to God. Colossians 2.13 and 14 He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. Ephesians 1.7 
In him we have been, sorry, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. 2 Corinthians 5:21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There are verses after verses after verses after verses that speak to what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf through his death. The conversations of forgiveness and reconciliation. The realities of payment for sin and righteousness and justification. The the, the thing that our human hearts long for in love and hope and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and self-control. All of these things are inextricably linked to the unique person of Jesus Christ. And all of this is possible because of his death. There is no version of enjoying eternal life without God. If Jesus doesn't die on a cross and accomplish these things for us, It's why Paul is so adamant in Ephesians 2 when he says, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that none of us can boast. If we ever find ourselves wondering why our response to Jesus is so crucial in determining whether or not eternal life is experienced, this is why. Without Christ's life and death and resurrection, without all that He has said and done, eternal life is not possible for any human being. Jesus describes Himself as though He's the gate. And you have to go through the gate. A little later on in John 14, Jesus says to those who would listen, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Jesus isn't simply talking about a a belief that says, you're this that gets me that. He's talking about my ways are the right ways. Because my ways, I am the way, because it's true. Because I'm God. This is my world and I've made it. And all of my ways are true. And they lead to life. And no one comes to the Father if we don't see Christ for who He is. This morning, I would invite you to find your communion elements on the table. We ran out of miracle meal. It's your lucky day. It is this moment It is this ceremony, it is this conversation, we do this once a month and sometimes more, where we continually go back to and ground ourselves in the unique person and the unique conversation of who Jesus Christ is. And we get to tell the story again and again and again and again that Christ out of love for you came to this world and willingly gave up His life so that we could experience forgiveness. So that we could experience what reconciliation is really like. That we really could experience hope and joy and peace and life and patience and goodness and self-control. It's all possible in and through the work and person of Jesus Christ. So this morning, 
As you eat this bread and drink this cup, let us proclaim the Lord's death until He returns because this is how we experience life. Yes, now, but also eternal life that is to come in our own death. Let's eat and drink and celebrate.